Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Andrew Ramage for a conversation about ancient Lydia, an ancient civilization that existed in the Anatolian Peninsula, so in the Eastern Mediterranean. And Dr. Ramage joins the show to share more about what's known of this previous civilization, including its people, governance, traditions, language, products produced, and more. Dr. Ramage is an archaeologist. He's Professor Emeritus at Cornell University, which is based in the city of Ithaca in the state of New York in the U.S. Predominantly throughout his career, he has studied ancient Lydia, including writing many publications on the topic, including a couple books as examples. He's co-author of the book Ordinary Lydians at Home, which was published by the Archaeological Exploration of Sardis and is distributed by Harvard University Press. And he's also co-author of the book King Croesus's Gold, Excavations at Sardis in the History of Gold Refining, which was also published by the Archaeological Exploration of Sardis, and in this case is in association with the British Museum Press. Welcome to call, Andrew. Hello. All right, so to create background and context um, for the conversation today, what was the civilization of Lydia? Well, it's, it's uh, a, a group of, of people uh, who settled and had their uh, largest, most famous site, which we can call the capital, uh, at a place called Sardis, which was a um, site that uh, had a, a very long history uh, from, well, I'm not about 1200, but from some time back in the Bronze Age before 1200 or so, um, well into uh, the Byzantine period, and still exists uh, as the village of, of Sart uh, in Western Turkey. Okay, very interesting. Um, and if you were to describe, you, you describe some of the geography around their, um, civilization, but if you were to, uh, describe what the civilization would have been, um, uh, overall, if you were to demarcate that and describe that, cause you mentioned the capital at the time was, uh, Sardis, how would you describe where their civilization, where their boundaries, uh, went to? Well, that, that's a that's a very good question, and it's a rather obscure um, study to know exactly uh, how to put that because boundaries were quite flexible uh, in, in those in those days. Um, and uh, furthermore, finding out exactly where one area of government and opposing areas of government uh, might be. Uh, is a, a, an ongoing uh, study right now, so that uh, they let's say that central Lydia uh, is best thought of, I, I think, uh, as the the, uh, the area around, in a very general sense of of around the valley of what in ancient times was called the Hermes River uh, and nowadays mm -hmm. it's called the Big Gediz Nehri in, uh, in, in Turkish uh, which flows out to the sea somewhat near uh, the city of Izmir um, and goes east in the valley uh, in Hermes ever-narrowing valley into the central parts of Anatolia. So that we would see uh, perhaps the, the Lydian people's um, grasp uh, of, the, of the area thinning out as the, um, the river went further east and the valleys uh, got, got narrower, the mountains got uh, 
more more precipitous and uh, less less prosperous. Okay, yeah. So then, do scholars when scholars speak about the uh, an- the ancient civilization of uh, Lydia? Um, when speaking about where they were on a map, is it considered that they were exclusively in the peninsula of Anatolia, or did or do scholars believe that their civilization uh, stretched beyond the peninsula? Well, mostly these days they they think in in the peninsula mm-hmm. is is their their home ground, and that they didn't venture very far uh, in terms of having. Satellite cities uh, away from the home, the homeland. Uh, there have been in, were ancient stories that uh, the Lydians formed the basis for uh, the Etruscan uh, culture in in Italy. Um, but uh, even in ancient times, that story was uh, doubted. Um, and uh, nowadays seems to be just as much in doubt as it ever was. Um, they they keep trying to do um, studies on the, the blood types, for instance, uh, of humans or skeletons uh, that are found in, in both places, uh, but nothing very... Uh, firm has arisen uh, interesting so uh that connection is in tradition um there's tradition about it but not there's no evidence that's concrete that uh references or cites the etruscans to lydia no curiously enough uh, i've heard and i haven't pursued the, the, the scholarly material but the Direct evidence, the only direct evidence now seems to be uh, through the the cattle, the cows of the Lydians and the group of cows in, in mm. central Italy where the Etruscans uh, had their, their, their center. So that um, may be just fortuitous, um, mm. but then certainly not sufficient. To, to prove that the Lydians really were the source of the Etruscan cult, but there's some connection with the cows. You're saying in the uh, in the yeah, Italian I peninsula. Believe, I believe so, but, uh, <laughs> how firm that would be, uh, I don't know. We keep talking about associations; don't necessarily mean certainty. Yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting, though. Okay, so what's what's known about the uh, the actual term Lydia? Is that an an English um, name that uh, got uh, uh, associated to this civilization at some point in more contemporary times? Is there a cognate for the term Lydia that matches what uh, this civilization, these peoples, would have called themselves? Can you speak more about this term Lydia and where it comes from? Well, the, Lydi- the Lydians are mentioned in quite a lot of ancient sources, testimonia, as, as we call them, particularly in within the text of a Greek historian Herodotus, who's a very important source uh, for early early history. Um, and legends uh, as as well. Um, so they do come in as as Lydians. Um, they're mentioned in some of the Near Eastern countries on the tablets. They there, so that the the Greek end of things calls them Lydai, Lidoi. Um, and in, in the Near East, Lud seems to be uh, the general uh, name for them. Their, their language is, in other words, they had their own language, um, 
faintly connected with an ancient the the, his, the Hittite language um, in the central Anatolian plain, but not really very closely attached to that. The Hittites was on my list of uh, questions to uh, ask in this uh, conversation, Andrew. Um, had a very uh, nice conversation with uh, Dr. Mark Whedon uh, a couple months ago. Uh, Mark Whedon from um, SOAS, University of London, on the Hittites civilization. And if I recall, uh, where we sort of left off in that conversation was the Hittites, the, the uh, cessation of the Hittites uh, civilization. Uh, somewhere around the end of the Bronze Age. Um, and then it sounds like uh, scholars believe the Lydians, um, th that civilization, which uh, is in the vicinity of where the Hittites predominantly would have been, would have picked up around when the Bronze Age was ending. But now you mentioned the language. There's a similarity. I, I'm making the presumption, therefore, it's an Indo-European uh, language, correct me if I'm wrong, because the Hittites, why I'm making that presumption was the Hittites um, language, Dr. Whedon said was uh, Indo-European, but you mentioned it somewhat different um, than the, the Hittites. So what's, what's known or speculated about the relationship, uh, kind of a chronological relationship to uh, whatever degree one may have existed from the Hittites uh, civilization uh, and then uh, what can, you know, coming next in time, the uh, Lydian civilization? Well, it, it's the general uh, opinion is that somehow the, the Lydians were under a very, um, well, what we could perhaps call it, a low-level uh, subservience uh, to the great king uh, in Hattusha, let's uh, say the Hittites, uh, but but loosely attached, um, and it's a long way to the uh, the central the central area, so that various local kingdoms or dukedoms or whatever things like that minor minor rulers uh, grew up at distances and at some some occasions would uh, get too big for their boots and give up uh, paying tribute say to uh, the, the Hittites and then they would come and uh, fix that in the form of military campaign. So that there are a number of, um, well, almost like satellite states uh, in different, in varying relationships to the, to the, uh, the Hittite empire. And as the Hittites were, um, the empire was coll collapsing or uh, at least losing its great influence that it had once had these satellite states began to take on more of their own sort of, sort of power um, and behave in an in a, in independent sort of way. And there's a, lots of doing and throwing about the what we call the, the misbehavior, if you like, uh, of people who, who ought to be subservient to, to the great king. <coughs> you know, it produced a sort of feudal kind of uh, conversation or, or writing terms uh, all around the Eastern Mediterranean that uh, the um, the big powers would refer to the, my my brother, the king of so and so, um, <coughs> and uh, someone else, well, his brother, the king of somewhere somewhere else. And uh, this was really a matter of diplomatic 
brotherhood uh, than actual lineage. That was an excellent answer, answer Andrew, and thank you for um, expanding on that. So, so what is it about the year 1200 BC, BCE then? Is it believed that, is there any evidence that the Lydians formalized their civilization in some way at that point in time? Or, and or is that when there begins to be more substantive archaeological remains that can be associated tied to this civilization? Uh, well, that that's more like it. The question of when we call when the Lydians are to be called Lydians, rather than they're just the people who are living in, in Lydia, is an is a question that keeps com- coming up. Twelve uh, hundred is just a handy uh, coat hanger, you might say, uh, when that's where. The more objective means of, of of dating and cultural association begin to fray at, at the edges. So we don't really know very little about things before that, um, in in terms of Lydia, especially. I mean. Part of what makes our book, this is the Ordinary Lydians book of, of interest, is that it begins to set the, the Lydians in, within the group uh, of Greeks and Romans. Um, Romans not quite on the scene in a big way yet, uh, but Greeks, of course. Um, are all all around, um, and contemporary uh, with the the earliest parts of the Lydians are the the Mycenaeans, uh, who have put out colonies uh, and trading spots and and, and things like that um, in the in the eastern Mediterranean. In fact, that a group is quite often associated with the Mycenaeans are called the Achiawa, uh, the as it's suspiciously like the uh, word Achaeans, uh, which is what the, the, the Greeks in Homer called themselves. Um, and uh, so that's another can of worms which we would try to avoid, I, I think, because it's such a, such a lot of... Uh, argument in that, in that area. And um, point of clarification on that very interesting point, Andrew, the the, the phrase, I'm not going to say it as well as you, you, you said it, the, the phrase that there's some speculation it uh, means Achaeans. Um, it, so the source of that phrase, is that from um, ancient records within Lydia, within that area or somewhere else? Uh, it's from it is from ancient records, but it is not from ancient records uh, in in Lydia. Um, there are ancient records, for example, in, in the area which we call Greece, from Knossos, for example, in Crete. Um, there are tablets lay tablets in the area, the mainland Peloponnesus in Greece itself, or uh, and Pylos, a place called, called mm-hmm. Pylos. Mm-hmm. There are a lot more tablets, where there's a palace, there are a great many more tablets. tablets. Um, and these are called the linear B tablets, and that language there has been de- demonstrated to be a sort of early form 
of, of Greek. So the, those tablets and then tablets uh, in <coughs> Egypt uh, mention these people from a place called Tel El Amarna in, in particular and several other places uh, there are sources that mention uh, we think the, the Mycenaean people. What's known, Andrew, about the their form of government? Well, very little uh, in the actual details. Uh, they have a king, Lydia. Um, and, but we don't know quite how power was shared or devolved from the, the king. Uh, as, as it were, he had his generals uh, and he had assistants, but we know rather little about um, the, the relationship. Uh, some of the more colorful stories or legends revolve around this sort of thing um, and there are hints that there were there were what we could think of as noblemen um, that seems to correlate more with the, the wealth uh, of a, a person or, or a family rather than the the, the blood relationship okay and so very many names are, are known. Okay. And then somewhat of a segue then, um, palatial buildings and se settlements. What's known um, from an archaeological perspective? Can you describe what's known about their actual s settlements? Well, the Lydians are supposed, you know, were supposed to be a palace of Croesus. Which we have may have found it's um, fairly recently, um, but uh, that that's not certain. And a lot of it, the pieces uh, have been reused uh, by people, by Persians or Greeks, and then after by uh, the, the the Romans. And in some cases, have been would have, would have been built on top of. So, as I say, we we know that there was supposed to be a, a palace. We don't really know uh, where certainly a certainty where it <coughs> would be. Mm. The way we we know, for instance, about uh, Assyrian palaces. Babylonian ones for that. So that's a, a big gap uh, and something that people have wanted to, to find for years and years, but um, now and that now we're getting a little closer mm. uh, to an area where it might have been. And we don't know quite how what it would have looked like either. This is a kind of in-between state um, where we really should think of uh, the, the Lydian ar arrangements as having more in common with the Near Eastern rulers than with uh, the, the Greek ones, although that's the, the way uh, most people have been trained and uh, it's you know a real eye-opener when you uh, think about a city wall uh, which which the foundations are uh, <coughs> about 
20 meters thick. Um, you can't compare that in any reasonable way with some of the remains of, of the independent Greek, Greek cities uh, on, on their mainland or even nearby on the Ionian coast. So we had to, when we first found that this piece of a wall, we had to rethink that we couldn't square the, these dimensions with the dimensions of the wall, for example, at an Ionian settlement uh, near Izmir, because they just weren't on the same scale. And uh, same sort of thing goes when we think of the, there are some huge burial mounds, uh, comparable in size, though not the material, uh, to the great pyramids in, in Egypt. So that's something that's been missed out that we haven't really been looking in the right direction or comparable um, architectural mm -hmm. comparison. You mentioned uh, in your answer there, uh, Croesus. And what I also noticed is that you wrote a book um, with uh, Croesus uh, in, in that name as well, King Croesus. So is it that uh, there, there is um, efforts over the years being made to uh, discover where Croesus's palace was in Sardis? Um, and can you ma maybe uh, expand on who uh, Croesus, King Croesus, was or speculated to be? Oh, well, Croesus was... I don't think there's any real need to put him in as a speculative class. Mm -hmm. He has become a sort of legend, but uh, to uh, in relationship to the, the amount of treasure that, that he had, the gold of Croesus is uh, a proverbial expression for a very long time. Uh, and so he's the last... Uh, of the Lydian kings, the last of a line of kings known as Mermnads, of which there were about six, um, starting with a king called Gyges, about whom there is a, a, a distinct le legend of King King Croesus, he was the, the, one of the top generals for King Croesus. Um, no, sorry, but for mm -hmm. a king a long time before Croesus, called Candaules, that's with a K or a C, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, um, who had a most beautiful wife. Miss Legend is set out in her auditory. He was so proud of his wife that he wanted to show her off to the general. And, and they arranged a, a plot, so to speak, whereby um, he could hide behind the curtain while she was undressing. But unfortunately, uh, she caught a glimpse of him and, uh, and it told him that uh, I... Either he had to kill the king or she would have him killed herself. And was he killed the king and became the king himself. And, uh, that started a, a, a line of kings of which Rhesus was, was the last. Oswin Murray, Dr. Emeritus Professor Oswin Murray has been on the show in the past from uh, University of Oxford, and we were chatting about Herodotus, and he told that very same story as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's being told 
people don't stop telling it because Herodotus, Herodotus sort of took it over and, uh, himself, I think, because there had been uh, historians or legend collectors uh, before his time, which was quite a bit after uh, the time of the time of Croesus. So uh, you wrote you wrote a book, um, Andrew, uh, called King Croesus, King Croesus's Gold Excavations at Sardis and the History of Gold Refining. So you've done excavations uh, on this topic. Um, can you can you speak more about uh, those excavations? Can you can you share what what the what what they were, what the purpose was, and what was discovered? Well, the, the way in which this got discovered was sort of by stages. And first, we scraped a considerable area uh, of the trench and discovered a large number of circles in the ground. Uh, and uh, with ash in the middle and sort of vaguely reddened, uh, outside uh, clay or earth and some bits of glossy stuff uh, around the edge and uh, mostly the, the turn turned green or something which indicated to, to us that uh, mm. something metallurgical might be going on and it might mm. have something to do with copper and, and that the copper business turned out to be a red herring mm. uh, and later <clears throat> so at, at that point the introduction of some uh, re refining possibly of silver uh, with uh, lead in these what turned out to be bowl hards uh, was going on mm. and then later on we discovered that uh, one of the walls uh, was in fact made out of red and mud brick uh, and had a number of divisions in it that uh, looked as if they could be the remnants of uh, a, a domestic oven, only in this case much higher fire than the average uh, domestic oven and such that we would uh, call them quite easily furnaces. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to uh, link up with descriptions of separating an alloy uh, commonly called electrum of silver and gold uh, together in a few small other Im impurities. Uh, and it turned out that this, the, the way we found this out was by asking our, our conservator, uh, who's usually well-versed in chemistry, um, what was going on and he, gave us a, d a description of these processes and in fact brought in a whole lot of things that were not, we hadn't told him about, but they were quite accurate. Um, and from that, uh, we began to think, or it was very likely that we were dealing with a, a gold refinery mm. uh, to get pure gold and eventually uh, pure silver. Uh, mm. And uh, and then we got we had the assistance of technical people in the British Museum. My co-author uh, Paul Craddock uh, was a, <clears throat> well well versed in uh, this sort of thing, dealing with the slag uh, and other oddments from the other processes in different places. Mostly, in his case, having to do with. Uh, brass um, but he got, came on board quite quite quickly uh, to see the interest of this early uh, gold refining and he's the person involved in the history of gold refining rather than the description of, of the discovery and he had a lot of uh, important analytical tools at his disposal so that he could uh, have different tests done uh, quite mm quite quickly and without worrying too much about the cost. 
It was a very good partnership. So your team found gold at the excava- during the excavations? Yes. <laughs> a large number of small bits of gold, gold foil. Um, the sort of thing, the modern equivalent might be uh, the cover of one of these paper or, or soft ma- ma- uh, matches that one used to find uh, all over in the restaurants, gave them away, uh, and, and so forth. So it's, it's about that thin or that thick. Um, and a lot of bits, but not much uh, value or weight to it. Okay. Um, in these grounds that you're doing the ex- excavation uh, on, the, the area, um, so is, is this believed or is there evidence that this was King Croesus's palace? Um, is there is there a, is there a link from to the findings back to King Croesus in any way? Uh, there is now, I think, in as a result of our work, in, the ancient texts tell us that the Lydians were the first people to separate pure gold and have silver coins and. Many people have just taken that to mean Croesus. King Croesus must have done it, because he was the one known as the richest man in the Greek world. And uh, now we found a lot of the pottery, especially the imported pottery, along with the gold refining uh, material, to fit rather well with the, uh, the dates of the reign of, of King Croesus. So that now, although we don't have an explicit um, written source, we have a much, good deal more circumstantial evidence to say very confidently that this was at the time of Croesus. Okay. One of the questions um, uh, I was going to ask at some point, but I think this is a very natural segue for it, was around coinage. So what's, what's known about uh, coinage uh, in ancient Lydia, it clearly existed because you just mentioned it. Um, but is there anything more you want to say about coinage that uh, in this in this period in this civilization? Well, there's general agreement that in the technical sense of the coins were invented right there in in, in Lydia, um, and they the first batches of coins were made of this uh, alloy of gold and silver Um, and that's not very handy because it's hard to tell how much gold you've got in the mixture Um, so obviously or not so obviously uh, the notion or the ways of extracting uh, pure gold uh, and silver were something that they, they needed to do since the uh, the Greeks very quickly after the invention of the coinage took up the silver side uh, rather than the gold side. We think that's partly uh, or even mainly because they had very few sources uh, of gold themselves, whereas Lydians had much more uh, so that they could uh, at least to begin with, uh, use a, a pure gold coin. Hmm. So that's that's how the the, the coins and sort of were first this rough mixture, uh, which couldn't be controlled all that easily. Uh, then a movement to the, the pure metals, uh, or Ease, ease, of, ease of use um, because they could uh, know better what they were getting in terms of value um, and then thereafter well the Lydians were taken over by the the, the Persians who continued the gold coinage in the western part of their were any inscriptions found on the coins 
Well, there's a certain amount of dispute about that because uh, the, the coins are not struck very evenly. Uh, and so you're not sure quite which part of what word you might have. There are, there are several coins that seem to have part of a word uh, which is generally agreed uh, to sound like wall wet. It's like W-A-L-W-E-T. Um, and some people have connected that with the name of a another Lydian king known as Aliates, as far as the Greeks trans, transliteration of, of, of the word, of his name. There's a constant mixture or difficulty in <clears throat> seeing what the Greek, what, the, what native names the Greeks took and how they um, translated them or transliterated them uh, so that so that it might very well be that the Lydians called a person Walwets, uh, and the Greeks heard a, a name rather like Aliates, and that's how they how they put it. Um, same sort of thing happens with Greek names and even current names uh, for Egyptian pharaohs. The way the Greeks heard it um, is what passed down into what we uh, use uh, now, nowadays, so that what the Egyptian pharaoh called uh, Suzret, say in the Egyptian, uh, turns out to be in the Greek transcription, Sesostris, which got a Greek ending and mm -hmm. it seems it's sort of a Greek middle, and, and several. several other names are not quite right compared to the actual way we think the Egyptians wrote them and possibly said them. Is there anything on the coins that might have linked uh, them back to King Croesus? Not that I've heard. No. no. Okay. Um, what did the um, what what were the main products that they would have manufactured? Like sort of the top two or three that they would have manufactured. Agriculture, um, you know, in the widest sense, uh, um, pastoral um, work was the basis, I think, of the Lydian economy until some there were this sudden influx of of gold um, so that the textiles are something to look look for they were very well known in the in the, in the, in the greek world and vary from the, the blankets uh, to elegant fine textured cloth used for headscarves and, and things like that I think we, we, we know the Lydians were very famous for, the, for their casualty, their, their cavalry. Mm -hmm. and the, an assumption from that is that they had a good stock uh, of breeding horses and would indulge in breeding, as I said, uh, or the rest of the, the Mediterranean world, or the uh, eastern Mediterranean world. Yeah. So we can be pretty sure about the um, textiles. And what goes mm -hmm. with the textiles uh, is the sheep rearing. Um, in the excavation, we find a lot of uh, bones uh, of uh, sheep and goats. Except for the horn, you can't tell the difference between the bones of a goat and the bones of a sheep. Okay. So that 
that's why we sort of budget and go on sheep, sheep goats. And, and as I say, assume that, that they provide the wool as well as the mutton. Okay, so we'll work our way into uh, some closing questions here, Andrew. This is really good. Um, were they seafaring people at all? No, hardly at all. They managed to um, co-opt various allies into doing uh, any naval work that they needed. Okay, and that would be presumed. That would that would be people like says, those from the Greek island of Samos, for example. Uh, they were they were seafarers and sent out colonies uh, when their population pressure was getting too high. Okay, and you mentioned this to me off the air, um, but but. Uh, is it presumed they weren't seafaring because of how far they were away from the sea? I think that's part of the part of the idea. Is did they? Yes, they're in. Well, I don't know about landlocked, but uh, they were definitely more connected with the land and the peoples to the east. Uh, I think, as, as far as general reputation is concerned. I mean, very much thought more like uh, what Eastern despots, uh, uh, rather than uh, what should we say, kings or noblemen uh, of the in the Greek tradition, or democrat democracy wasn't on the cards for the for the Lydian or. Okay, you mentioned uh, uh, closing question. You mentioned King uh, Croesus is considered the last king of the Lydians. Um, what happened with their civilization? Well, the it's truly he's the last king, technically speaking. The Persians took over at that point, um, and really attached Lydia to their long list of, of subject peoples. Uh, and, and little by little, the, the Lydians uh, first carried on very much the way they had uh, with their ancestral practices. Um, it's particularly obvious with the pot making uh, traditions, which just not obviously interrupted uh, by the, what must have been in some situations quite an <coughs> important change but, but mostly for the upper crust uh, that's the, the kings and or Croesus and his family and so on were taken prisoner Croesus was, was supposedly in one of the stories uh, sacrificed on a, a pyre uh, and uh, or was about to be sacrificed on the power and, and on the pyre you know, pyre when a heavy shower uh, from Apollo uh, brought those uh, festivities to an end so we don't really know what happened to uh, we don't know all awfully well what happened to his treasure. Um, mostly the, the gold would have been melted down, I think. Uh, we don't even know quite what vessels, or how much of it was in the form of made vessels, and how much of it in the form of uh, raw gold dust, um, or even in the form of gold bricks. And he made gave a whole lot of gold bricks uh, to the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi, which are laid out in 
the Greek historian Herodotus, who I mentioned before. And so, and some of those are described as pure, and some of them seem to be described as not not so pure, i.e. the original metal. So, and we, people have made great efforts to figure out how much uh, this represented in, in terms of gold. And last I heard, <coughs> we were talking about three and a half tons, which is, I mean, a phenomenal amount. And then somewhere, um, Herodotus says, uh, sort of offhand way, uh, and he gave a similar amount to the Oracle of Apollo and down in, in southern Ionia. The you know that's quite quite a quite a way to talk about three three tons of gold. Hmm. And uh, so the civilization was taken over from a hegemony perspective, but the people, uh, as, as a people, lived on. Yes, I think that's the way. It was quite, uh, they were quite tenacious about traditions and it took a few hundred years to lose uh, track of the, uh, the very idiosyncratic uh, Lydian It's been very enjoyable speaking with you today, Andrew. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. Well, I had fun. Thank you. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Ramage wrote, he's a co-author of the book Ordinary Lydians at Home, and he's also co-author of the book King Croesus's Gold, Excavations at Sardis and the History of Gold Refining. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Andrew and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.